And last week we started chapter 6, focusing on the sovereignty of God, and we did not finish that. So if you would like to open your Bible, please, to Esther chapter 6. Again, the whole book of Esther emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Although his name is never mentioned in the book, his working is extremely evident the entire way through. Remember, the decree has been signed now that, the, that within a year the Jews are going to all be destroyed. Haman still is very upset at Mordecai, and now he's devised a plan to try to kill him. And he has a gallows that is made, and he's going to go to the king and tell the king it's time to hang Mordecai, the Jew. And that is where we pick up in chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep... And he commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Tirash, two of the king's chamberlains and keepers of the door, whom sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? And they, then said the king's servant that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman was coming to the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to honor more than, my, than to myself? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and a horse which the king rideth upon, and crown royal, which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city to proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel, and a horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zerash, his wife, and all his friends, everything that befallen him. Then said the wise men and Zerash, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted Haman under the banquet that Esther had prepared. So four ways in which we have been observing the sovereignty of God and how God works. First, we saw God harmonizes all circumstances. And we made it through point one last week. So this week, we're going to look at God humbled the fool. And the third way God's sovereignty is demonstrated is God honors the saint. And the final way is God hurries the demise of the wicked. So let's ask again the Lord for his guidance. Father, we do pray that you would teach us and guide us through this passage Lord, that we would understand you are in control of all things. So, Lord, help us not to fear, but to simply trust you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, again, be reminded, what must have it been like to be a Jew in Persia at this time, knowing that the decree is signed that you're to be killed? Do you think that that would bring fear in people's hearts? Absolutely. But, Christian, you and I are not to live by fear, but by faith. 
Too often this world lives in fear, and I see Christians reacting in fear. Well, we saw last week, and just for way of review, for those that were not here, God harmonized the circumstances. There's no coincidences with God. It's not a coincidence that this night, between the banquet, the first banquet that Esther had and the second banquet, when she's going to give her request, is the same night in which the king could not sleep. It's no accident that he called for the Chronicles to be read, like reading minutes off of business meetings. That would be nice and boring to try to put you to sleep. It's no accident that the book that's being read happens to contain the account of Mordecai saving the king when, the, uh, when there was two men in the kingdom who were trying to kill the king, and Mordecai heard about it, and he reports it, and these men are obviously probably eliminated, and nothing was ever done for Mordecai. It's no accident that of all the things being read that night, that that is the one thing that caught the king's attention And the king says, hey, what have we done for Mordecai? Well, nothing, king. It's it's not by accident that the very moment that the king says, well, who's in the court? Haman happens to be walking in with the purpose of addressing the king, saying it's time to hang Mordecai on the gallows. When the king asked the question, he asked it in such a way that Haman thinks that it's him that the king wants to honor. And then Haman ends up being the one that has to parade around Mordecai And then he's rushed to the banquet. All these things were not by accident. It's all God's perfect timing. And you and I need to understand God's timing is always perfect. Nothing takes God by surprise. And we looked at a few attributes of God. Who remembers some of the attributes of God that we looked at last week? Omniscience. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. I don't know how else to say it. So if God knows everything, then why do we act like God is the last one we need to go to when we have a problem? So his omniscience, what else do we see about God? Omnipotence, he's all-powerful. He's powerful enough that with his very words, he spoke these worlds into existence. That's pretty powerful. All right, what else do we see about God? Omnipresence, God is everywhere present. There's nowhere I can be that God is not there, right? All right, and what else did we see? Everybody forgets the last one. He's infinite. I got a little finite mind. There's a lot of things I don't know. I was having a conversation with my son Joshua the other day. I said, Josh, the thing is, we don't know what we don't know. And there's a whole lot of that out there, isn't there? That I don't know. There's things I don't know, and I don't know that I don't know them because I don't know. But God knows. Because he is all-knowing, he is infinite, he, nothing takes God by surprise. So this whole circumstance, from the very time that Haman tries, uh, sets up this decree to destroy all the Jews, all the way to how God resolves it, none of it took God by surprise, he already knew. The trials that you're going through in your life, God already knew were coming. And he already knows the outcome. Now, we don't but we can trust the one who does. So God harmonized the circumstances. Then let's look secondly at how God humbled the fool. God can turn the wickedness of man unto himself. (coughs) Verses 4 and 5, Now the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was coming to the outer court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. 
Now, in chapter, the very next chapter, what ends up happening? We all know this account. I hope most of you know this account. But in the very next chapter, Haman ends up hanging on the very gallows that he prepared. God can take the wicked things that men devise and turn it on themselves. Proverbs 1, 30 through 33. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my proof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. They shall be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. You know, sometimes we think we know what's best. And we go to God and we say, God, this is the plan and how I want it done. And God says, no. Sometimes we realize later our plan was really not the best. But his plan is always perfect. But the proud, like Haman, cannot see beyond themselves. Because when the king says, Haman, what should I do to the man who the king wants to honor? The first thought that goes through Haman's mind is, well, who in this entire kingdom would the king want to honor but me? I mean, after all, I'm Haman. I'm the second in charge. I, I come up with this great plan to kill all the Jews. And, you know, I, I, I suck up to the king all the time. And, you know, I'm just really this great guy. And, I mean, who else in this entire kingdom of all these probably millions of people would possibly he want to honor but me? Well, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? We need to be careful we don't start developing that kind of attitude. Well, God, I'm serving you, so of course you want to honor me, right? Well, I'm, I, I did this good thing, so I need to be recognized for it. Haman could not think beyond himself because pride blinds. And we live in a society that is totally infatuated with self and self-worship. Our society thinks way too much of self. And it's interesting, you know, all, all these people working on their self-esteem and everything else, the problem is what we lack is humility. In our society, as I said, most people think way too much of themselves. I'm somebody. I deserve better. My happiness is the ultimate goal. I've heard people say that. My happiness is my goal. It doesn't matter who they hurt, how they trample on others. It doesn't matter about relationships. It doesn't matter about anything to them because my happiness is the ultimate goal. Kind of sounds like Haman, doesn't it? His happiness, his joy, though so he thought, was the ultimate goal. But Psalm 10, verse 4 reminds us, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. But God has a way to put down the proud, does he not? Because so Haman comes up with this plan. Okay, we're going to array him in royal apparel. We're going to put him on the king's horse. We're going to put a crown on him. And we're going to parade him through the town saying, this is what's done to the man whom the king wants to honor. And the king says, great idea, Haman. Go get the stuff and do it for Mordecai. Could you imagine how his jaw dropped to the floor? Excuse me? You want me to do this for who? Mordecai, the Jew. Yeah, I thought I heard that. I mean, as he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm here to have him hung on the gallows. Now I got to go parade him around town. God has a real sense of humor. Because so here Haman is parading around Mordecai on the back of the horse, wearing the king's garments, wearing the king's crown, saying, this is what happens to the man whom the king wants to honor. 
God can abase the proud. We have another great example in Scripture. Hold your place there, Nestor, and flip over to the book of Daniel, if you would. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the account of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was warned in a dream by God in chapter 4, verses 1 through 27. And I'm not going to read all of it, but let's just start at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and all the people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show you the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream it made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and vision had troubled me. And he talks about the dream and then how Daniel interpreted the dream. And basically, the dream is that, well, here we go, verse 18. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, but thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation for as much as the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make it known in the interpretation. But thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is with thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them to hate thee, and the interpretation of it to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and strong, was strong, whose height reached to heaven, and the height and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for, uh, for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt under whose branches the fowls of heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for, the, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth into heaven, and thy dominion the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump and the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass in the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. This is your interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grasses and oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of the heaven. Seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and give it to whomsoever he will. So, this dream warns Nebuchadnezzar that there's going to be a punishment coming on him. And he's going to lose the kingdom for seven years. But let's go down to verse 28. And it came to pass, I'm sorry, and it came, all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of his kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake and said, Is, this, is not this great Babylon that I have built for my house, for the house of the kingdom, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? You see the pride still in Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 31, While the word was yet in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And of course they drive him and feed him like an ox for seven years, and then the kingdom is restored. But verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, all his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. He got the lesson. He had to learn it the hard way. But Christian, it'd be much better if you and I learn to humble ourselves before a holy God 
than he have to humble us. So God humbled the fool, but then God also honored the saint. He lifted up Mordecai. Mordecai was not seeking position. Mordecai was not seeking fame. He was not seeking for the praise of men. He was just trying to do the right thing. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves in the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. But honor from God is better than the praise of men. Haman sought the praise of men, did he not? We've seen this several times throughout this, this, this book thus far how Haman even demanding, if you will, worship of people, not just falling down before him, but almost as in an act of worship when he comes by, and Mordecai refuses. Why? Because Mordecai cared more about what God thought than what man thought. Now, I want you to go back and I want you to remember when Haman first threatened Mordecai and was upset because Mordecai would not bow, what did everybody around Mordecai say? Just do it. It's not a big deal. Just bow. It's no big deal. We all know that you truly worship God. But, you know, just to, just to keep the man quiet, just go ahead and bow. Okay, let me ask a question. Now these very people see Mordecai being put in the back of a horse in the king's apparel, wearing the king's crown, being paraded through town, and, and Haman leading him, saying, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king wants to honor. What do you think about the testimony of Mordecai now? When you and I make decisions, you and I need to think beyond right now, and you and I need to think about the testimony, because you and I, here as ambassadors of heaven, represent our King Jesus Christ, and you and I need to represent him well, and think about how this will look if I make this decision. You know, he could have made the decision to just capitulate, but the story wouldn't have been and he, the way it turned out, and he would have lost his testimony. But he maintained his testimony and God honored it. Christian, you and I need to think about our testimony when we're making decisions. What am I saying to others? Am I being an example to other Christians to follow? Am I setting an example for the lost world to show them Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not talking about just a social evangelism and a lifestyle gospel, although our lifestyle should be proclaiming the gospel. Yes, we need to proclaim with our mouth, but I think way too often Christians proclaim with their mouth, but their lifestyle doesn't match up. And the lifestyle better match. Correct? Because how can you say, I trust God, when you live in fear? And that's exactly what would have been if Mordecai had given in and just bowed. It would be given into his fears. But he stood strong, and God honored him. Now, I would love to go interview those people that told Mordecai, just go ahead and give in. As he's sitting on the back of the horse parading around, ah, God honored him for standing up. You see that? Well, taking a stand for truth always pays. Now, sometimes God will choose to honor his servants here. Sometimes it won't be here. For instance, we have in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, the account of Stephen, the first martyr, and he's preaching faithfully, is he not? 
But instead of being honored here, as he's dying in Acts chapter 7, as he's being stoned, he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and behold, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, Jesus ascended to heaven and he is what? Sitting on the right hand of God. And I'm sure you've all heard this before, but when Stephen looked up into heaven, he saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And I believe that he was being honored because he being the first martyr, Jesus Christ stands up in honor of him. Let me tell you something. That's much greater honor to being prayed around the back of a horse, right? God is keeping track. The three Hebrew children, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they realized God could deliver them. He said, God, they said to the king, God can deliver us. But if he chooses not to, we're still not going to bow, king. Now, God did choose to deliver them when they were cast in the, in the uh, furnace of fire. And the king looks in. He says, didn't we cast three in there? I see four. And the fourth looks like the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ joined him in the fire. So what are we willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? What are you willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Mordecai didn't know that he was going to be honored. Mordecai didn't know that eventually he would become advisor to the king through Esther. He didn't know that. But then lastly, I want us to see God hurries the demise of the wicked. Verse 12 is very interesting. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. You know, Mordecai didn't walk around all day bragging and puffed up and thinking, yeah, I got honored today. You know what he did? Went right back to his duty. Went right back to work. Because he wasn't focused on the praise of men. Haman was, and he lost it. That's why he's going home mourning. See the attitude difference between these two? But the wicked are never satisfied. He went home to pout, Haman did. And he wanted the comfort of his friends. But let's remember, God's plan will be accomplished. Now, God is long-suffering. The Bible tells us that. He's not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why do we see the wickedness continuing in this world today? Because God is long-suffering and giving men opportunity to repent. God gave Haman opportunity to repent. He chose not to. But God will judge the wicked. Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Remember, God's timing is perfect and his judgment is right. But it's very interesting in verse 13. God works in mysterious ways. Haman told Zerash and his wife and his friends everything that had befallen him. And instead of trying to offer him comfort and saying, well, it's okay, Haman, you know, just continue on what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. 
They say to him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. Haman, you're done. That's essentially what they're saying. You've already begun to fall, and you're toast. Well, thank you, dear. Yeah, thank you, friends. You know, I don't understand how God used these pagan people to give something so prophetic. Okay? But God does work in mysterious ways because I'll tell you what, that's very prophetic and it's very true that, Haman, this is only the beginning of the end. And your end's coming real quick. Somehow, some way, these pagans realized there's something unique about this God that the Jews serve. I don't understand how because the Bible doesn't tell us. But they understood something. If he being a Jew and you've begun to fall, you're just going to collapse. It's all going to fall apart for you because something about their God is pretty powerful. And we know that because he is the only living God. He is the only God, right? There are no other gods beside him. All these fake gods, false gods that people worship are not true gods. He is the only God, and so he's the only one that has the power. He's the only one that knows. He's the only one that is everywhere present. He's the only one that is infinite. We know that. The world sees the evidence of it, but isn't it amazing how the world will still reject it? God in Scripture never tries to prove his existence. But he does tell us that what he created is enough to point to the fact that he exists. Because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There is no way all this happened by random chance. You know, if we were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If we were a little further from the sun, we'd all freeze. It's amazing when astronauts go out into space that they look and see. You know what, you know what amazes them most? That little thin strip that we call our atmosphere that from space looks like just a tiny little ribbon around the earth and they're like, wow. And that's what sustains life on that planet. And how small the planet earth looks from space compared to space that they see out there. And they're like, wow, we're pretty insignificant. But you know, if we didn't have that little atmosphere that they go through, you know, getting the other side of and looking back at, we wouldn't be here because we need oxygen to live in case you haven't figured that out, right? And isn't it amazing that the plants need the carbon dioxide and their waste product is oxygen and when we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Now that just happened by random chance, right? Of course it did. We could go on and on and on of all the amazing things that God created and how it works every single time. Because he is the only God. So somehow these pagans basically telling Haman, yeah, buddy, you're done. They predicted Haman would not succeed against Mordecai or the Jews. But now what's interesting to me, because it would seem to me that Haman would now want to maybe engage in a debate with his friends or to devise a new plan to try to figure out how am I going to get rid of Mordecai or... Because the man's heart is weak, wicked and evil, right? And he's going to try to think of something new to do. But he doesn't have any time because as soon as his friends tell him, basically, Haman, you're going down. All of a sudden there's a knock at the door. 
And it's the king's servant saying, Haman, time to go to the banquet. Remember, you're supposed to be there. Let's go. He doesn't even have time to plan anything. Just by chance. It happened that way, right? Now, I want you to think about the mindset of Haman as he's walking into this banquet. Because just a few hours earlier, he's going to plan to hang Mordecai. But instead of getting the opportunity to hang Mordecai, he has to parade Mordecai around town. So he's really humbled now. He's angry. He's frustrated. He just had his wife and friends tell him, you're, you're, you're going to fall apart. You're going to, you're going to be destroyed. I mean, I could just imagine the mental state in which Haman is walking into this banquet. Do you think that was by accident? No. I'm telling you, God cares about details. So now when he walks into the banquet, he's not even thinking straight. I mean, he's so mad, he's cross-eyed, right? He's so angry coming into this banquet. So when you come into the king, you're supposed to be all happy and cheerful, right? So he has to put on this facade, but inside his blood is just boiling. And now what happens at the banquet? Well, you have to come back next week. But I'm sure you already know because you already read it. But this is when the queen finally tells the king what a request really is. And this man in such an angered state, such a distraught state, gets desperate. God planned the whole thing. Just a few hours earlier, he was going to the king to say, we need to hang Mordecai on the gallows. Within just a few hours from this point, he'll be hanging on those very gallows. That's amazing. Now, let's just stop and think. This is a true account of actual events that happened in history. This is not some made-up story. This is actual events that happened to real people in history. And God orchestrated every detail of what happened to bring down Haman and to save the Jews, and to honor Mordecai, and to bring Esther into the kingdom. And all these things were orchestrated by God Almighty. And as we even said back when Esther was selected, do you think that was the most pleasant process for her to have to endure? No. But everything is leading up to this one point. Sometimes we don't understand what God is doing. Sometimes we don't understand God's plan, but we can trust him that he knows what's best and his plan is perfect and it is acceptable. It's good. And I just simply need to follow him, trust him, and obey him. Stop living in fear. Stop worrying. Stop fretting. God's in control. Just follow him. And let me tell you something. When you learn to trust God, God will give you the peace that passes all understanding. People are going to look at you and say, how can you be so calm? Because they're falling apart because the storms of life are hitting. And they're like, I don't understand. And you can say, let me tell you, it's not me. It's God. And I've trusted him. And I know he knows what's best. So I can go through this storm with perfect calm. You know, when the disciples were out on the sea, they're all panicking. And remember, some of them fishermen used to be out to sea used to having storms, and they're panicking, thinking we're going to die, and where's Jesus? In the bottom of the boat, fast asleep. Why? Because he wasn't worried. 
And so when they come to him and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? What a dumb question. He just gets up and says, Hey, when? Shh. I'm sleeping over here. Okay? Now, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but peace be still has the idea, Shh. Be quiet. Tells the wind, just be quiet. Tells the waves, be quiet. I don't know if he went back to sleep or not. Okay? I don't know. Doesn't matter. But the point being is he was fast asleep because he was resting. He was trusting. He knew that it wasn't going to overtake them. But when the storms of life come, way too often we're like the disciples, aren't we? We're bailing and we're trying to get the sails set and we're trying to do all these things and we're trying to do it in our strength and our power. And then we turn to God and say, don't you even care? Yeah, he cared the whole time. Why did we try doing it in our own strength before we dare try doing it in our own? Or in his? Why did, we, why did we, let me rephrase that. COVID brain. Why did we try doing it in our strength before we went to him and asked him for his guidance? As I said earlier, last week, we turned to everybody else, turned to everything else, and then turned to God last. Why do we do that? Shouldn't we turn to God first? You know, many of you are good friends, but you all don't have the answers. He does. Now, I do come to you for advice sometimes, yes, but I hope that I've gone to him first, right? We must trust God who is in control of all. His sovereignty is seen in the whole book, but especially I believe this chapter really focuses on the sovereignty of God. The timing of the events that created the Necessary circumstances, the humbling of the fool, the exalting of the saint, all point to God's working, and God desires to work in your life. So the question is, are you yielded to him for him to be able to work in your life? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you trusting him, or are you leaning under your own understanding? Proverbs tells us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our paths. God is sovereign. God's will will be accomplished. But God has still given each of us a free will to choose whether we're going to follow him or we're going to try to rebel against him. But either way, folks, God's will will still be accomplished. And it's a whole lot better for us to submit to him and to walk with him than to be found fighting against him. Let's close with a word of prayer.